Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, how many of you are pulling for the Chiefs? Just a couple. How many of you are pulling for the Niners then? Okay, okay, all right. So you can join Paul Taylor. He's downstairs. He's got his jersey on. He's ready to go. How many of you, like me, are just pulling for Taylor Swift? <laughs> Usher, commercials. It's about where I'm at. I'm rooting for both the 49ers and Taylor Swift, so I am a paradox unto myself. <laughs> uh, but this morning, we, uh, it seems like a fitting time on this day when we eat, you know, seven-layer nachos and uh, uh, all that stuff, wings and everything, to conclude our uh, five-week series on practice of fasting. This Wednesday actually marks Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the Lenten season. We, have a, uh, we will have a prayer and engagement guide uh, with some prompts for how you can kind of join in uh, fasting and prayer throughout the Lenten season. I'll say some more about that a little bit later on. Uh, but every now and then you come across something in still life that strikes you, uh, something that kind of catches your eye from uh, a distance or even maybe up close, makes you think, makes you laugh, makes you just kind of you know, chuckle to yourself. This happened to me a couple weeks ago as I was uh, going into my office to, in, at my home to do some reading and some continued preparation on this series on fasting. I looked over at the uh, desk and saw this. I had just met with some of our eighth grade boys over at Revolution Donuts and I came from there to get ready to preach and apparently, I set my salted caramel donut on top of the book I had been reading, and I was like, the irony is just too much. <laughs> but it also struck me as the perfect encapsulation of our message for today, because the life that Jesus envisions, that he was training his disciples to embrace, is held between the tension of these two poles, that we fast in longing for the fullness of the kingdom that is yet fully to arrive to renew and remake this world, but we also feast because in Jesus that kingdom is present and through the power of the Holy Spirit we uh, get to live as a people shaped by that future in the here and now and the church has always lived in between these two places. One of my favorite preachers is the Episcopal preach Fleming Rutledge, and she drives this home so well in her, her writing when she, she writes this. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives within the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The kingdom is here now. It is not yet here. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that tension, the church lives its life. We fast because the kingdom is not yet here in fullness. We long for it to come. We feast because Jesus is present to us and he's put the future in our hearts. He's leading his people into the future that God intends. We fast because our hearts were made to long for the future when he will come to renew and make all things. But the future that he's pointing to is a feast that never ends. It's revolution donuts all the way down. <laughs> Fasting is what we do in hopeful anticipation. Feasting is what we were made for. 
So as we conclude the teaching portion of this practice, I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 15, or if you have a worship guide, you can follow along in there, or you can simply listen. But I want to invite you, before we read, to just take a moment and pause that we may hear the Spirit together. Lord Jesus, we come seeking a word that can only come from you, and so we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would open these words to us, that we would hear, in these words written long ago, a word that is alive and active, that you are still speaking to the church. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Matthew chapter 9. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, they came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus began his ministry with a fast, but the Gospels also make it abundantly clear that Jesus also came to feast. He knew what that life was about. And for Jesus, meals are about way more than just food. They were a sign of the welcome of the kingdom of God that was crashing into the world. It's the theme that we see all throughout scriptures, this, this sign of God's hospitality, of God's welcome, of God's drawing people in, takes place through this repeated image of a wedding feast. It's a giant party. Gathering around a table is, is such a common theme. Uh, in the Old Testament, there is the Passover meal, which celebrates God's deliverance of the people from the bondage of, of Egypt. And then when God does make the covenant to those people who are, who are freed and bonded with him in the desert, he has this chosen representatives of Israel gather for a banquet on Mount Sinai. The prophet Isaiah gives this image to the people in exile. On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. Jesus' parables tell of a kingdom that is like a wedding feast that never ends. There's every indication that meals with Jesus were the best, that there was joy, there was laughter, there was people being seen. In John's gospel, the very first uh, miracle that Jesus uh, does takes place at a wedding feast where the wine never runs out. 
And before his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples together and he prepared a banquet for him that was a sign and a foretaste of the future. This is what God's kingdom is like. It is a meal. People gathered around a table. But the feast is about way more than just the food. And the thing about Jesus is that he doesn't just tell parables. He acts them out. And that's what's going on with this scene in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew is, uh, invites Jesus to his home, the same Matthew who writes the gospel. And Jesus is giving a demonstration of what the kingdom of God is like, what God's dream for the, the rule over earth is like. For Jesus, meals are the sign of this hospitality to, to welcome in those who have been kept far away, to bring them near, those who were on the outside brought in. But there are two very different groups of people, and they come with two very different questions. And they're wondering what all of this means. The Pharisees, they come and they ask about who Jesus eats with. Sinners. Tax collectors. If the company you keep says something about your character, then they got a lot of questions for this Jesus who seems a bit like a walking paradox. You see, when Jesus hands out invitations to a meal, though, he's handing out invitations to the kingdom of God because Jesus is the kingdom in person. And so when the kingdom is here in the present, his disciples feast. They experience the fullness of life. But Jesus also taught his disciples what it would be like to fast and when they should do so. That leads to the second question, This time, Jesus is approached by John the Baptist's disciples who want to know, how is it that we and the Pharisees, we fast all the time, but your disciples don't do that? In other words, you're like, why are your disciples ignoring tradition? Uh, John taught us to fast. It was good enough for him. It's good enough for the Pharisees. But your disciples are known more for eating and drinking. They are known more for having a party than they are for for being uh, those who fast. And maybe they're asking out of genuine concern. They want the ministry of Jesus to flourish, to thrive. But maybe they're asking because they're like, yo, this is a way better offer if we can just party with you than do what John tells us to do. So what's, what's the inside scoop here? But either way, the thing to note is they are asking Jesus about his disciples. They're not asking about Jesus himself. You see, Jesus began his ministry with fasting for 40 days. We often see him in the Gospels withdrawing to pray and to be alone. And often the Gospel writers say he is so occupied in the work of the kingdom that he is doing that he doesn't even have time to eat. They point this out on numerous occasions. One time his disciples come to him and beg him to eat something. And Jesus says this in John's Gospel, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. For Jesus, fasting was an opportunity to feast on God and his purposes in the world. But at the same time, Jesus tells his disciples to eat on the Sabbath, to to pluck grain so that they don't go hungry. He, He has them gather around for these parties. He offers them no restriction on what they should eat. He gives no special instructions to them on fasting. He says simply, you will fast. And maybe it's because it's so common in his culture that he doesn't feel the need to spend a whole lot of time on it, except to point out some of the pitfalls, some of the excesses, 
some of the pride that can get wrapped up in a practice like this. So Jesus fasts, but he doesn't expect and doesn't really worry about his disciples' practice. And that seems odd to these disciples of John. What kind of rabbi are you anyway? You don't have your disciples do what you do. And my, fun, my hunch is that he figures, look, maybe it's because Jesus' disciples have been with him so long. They have been watching from him. They have been uh, immersed in the rhythms of his life. That Jesus is just not worried about it, that they'll know what to do when the time comes. You'll remember what it's all about. And so he pushes back at these disciples of John with a question of his own. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Now, John the Baptist was well known, bless you, for fasting. For him, uh, fasting was a way of carrying hope in his body for the, for the coming kingdom. John could not be comfortable in the world until that he saw that kingdom being established a little bit more fully. But Jesus sees things differently. See, for Jesus, the kingdom is here. What John was looking for, Jesus says, open up your eyes. It's here now. Jesus doesn't fast for the future kingdom because Jesus is the kingdom of God in the here and now. And so he draws on this imagery from a, a wedding feast from the prophets that, that the kingdom of God would be like this endless banquet of joy and peace and flourishing. This Jewish wedding feast would last for seven days at a time. He says it's going to be like that, stretching into eternity. For Jesus, eating with him was a way of allowing his disciples to just have a sample of the menu. So John, he longed for the kingdom he fasted as a, as a way of, of embodying that longing. And Jesus, he taught his disciples to feast as a way of participating in that future and allowing that future to shape their present. So what does that mean for us? Well, Jesus kind of leaves it on, on a cliffhanger here. What happens after the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus' body is no longer present? Well, during that time, Jesus says, that's when my disciples will fast. That's when they will long again for a day when justice and peace and the, the grace of heaven to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when Jesus began his ministry, he, he began with this, this declaration, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And, and when you hear that word repent, don't think necessarily of a, a hellfire and brimstone street corner preacher. It's an invitation to reorient your life around what is really true. To be in alignment with that, you'll have to reorient your life. You'll have to turn it around because the old order of things that is so much present in this present age is fading away and a new way is coming it's being eclipsed by the reality of a new kingdom coming into this world. For Jesus, repentance means forgetting what you think you know, ditching your old agenda, and taking on his instead. And so in the biblical frame, repentance is not about just saying you're sorry for your past bad actions and trying to you know, be on the straight and narrow and live a good life in the future. 
It is an invitation to rethink reality from the ground up, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds, as Paul later put it, to live as people who see with renewed vision, who live in the age to come, in the presence of a world that is mercilessly held in bondage to the sin and struggle of this present age, to watch and to wait for the slow and steady eclipse of the kingdom to come and transform everything. And so we find ourselves as a people who live in between the times. The mustard seed of the kingdom is present in Jesus. It has not yet terraformed everything. And so for a people who live in between the times, there is this rhythm of both fasting and feasting. The staff teases me about liking Venn diagrams, but here's one, because it's helpful. Before Jesus, God's people fasted in anticipation of the kingdom. During the time of Jesus' presence, the disciples fast, or feasted because the kingdom is here. And at the church, we live at that intersection of the two ages where the kingdom is both present and we live under the, the present age, under the, under the reign of the kingdom that Jesus brought into the world that one day will come into fullness. And so we fast as a way of holding out hope for that future coming of the kingdom in its fullness. But we also feast as a sign of the ways that that kingdom is present in us now. Fasting is a response to two sacred moments. Our recognition that the world is not as it is meant to be. And our longing for Jesus' presence. I love how the Reverend Thomas Ryan put it. He writes, Fasting is one of the ways the servants of Jesus keep themselves alert in this future-oriented waiting until the bridegroom returns. To what could you liken their discreet, mysterious joy as they wait? Well, you could say it's like the quiet humming or whistling of a choir member earlier in the day of a concert. It's like a mother and father cleaning the house and making up the beds in anticipation of the kids coming home at Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's like standing in the airport terminal or train station waiting for your loved one to appear. It's like a fiancé patiently addressing the wedding invitations. The long-awaited event is not yet here, but it will come, and this is necessary preparation. In each case, the energy is upbeat, forward-looking, and marked by the quiet joy of anticipation. It's like getting out all the spread for the Super Bowl party in anticipation of the guests who are going to come and the joy you're going to have together. One of the things that distinguished the early Christians from other groups who fasted is the way that they did so as a way of holding hope in their bodies. They fasted because they longed for Jesus to return, to establish the kingdom, to be an answer to that prayer on earth as it is in heaven. And that is also why his disciples still fast today. Sometimes we long for the presence of God's justice and peace and goodness and, and love and light to come flooding into this world. We long for it so much, we feel it so acutely that that feeling puts us in sharp contrast with the present reality that we're living in. And we see the way that the world is, all the ways that does not reflect the beauty of that kingdom. Fasting allows us to actually carry that dissonance in our bodies. It's both an act of faith and hope for the future that God longs for, 
And with that longing, we, we pray for the future to invade the present. Christians always live in that tension of the now and the not yet reality of God's kingdom. The kingdom is now, and we see it when every system of oppression is dismantled, when the poor and the, are, are housed and fed, when the disenfranchised are brought in, when those who are far from God find a home in him. That's why Jesus feasted. But we also know that the kingdom is not yet. And we see that all the time as well. Senegal on the brink of civil war over elections. Seven burned alive as Russia hits Ukrainian oil depot. Six-year-old girl found dead in Gaza after crying for help. Atmospheric river in Los Angeles prompts concerns over the future. Those are just this morning's headlines. We know what it is like to long for the body to yearn for one day when everything is put to rights. And sometimes we know it so well that the only thing we can do is fast. Last weekend I took a, a trip with 50 other pastors and ministry leaders on a pilgrimage to Birmingham, Selma, and Montgomery, to some of the key places in uh, the struggle in this nation for racial justice. We sat in the pews of 16th Street Baptist Church where four little girls were killed in 1963 in an act of domestic terrorism by a bomb planted by a white supremacist outside of the church because he knew that that morning they were having a children's service. This was two weeks after King's March on Washington and the famous I Have a Dream speech. In two weeks, the dream had turned into a nightmare. Our tour guide was one of the college students who was there, present, jailed for the peaceful protests where the dogs and the hoses were used to suppress the crowd. We then got back on the bus and went to Selma, walked across the Pettus Bridge in remembrance of the 8,000 who took the three-day walk from Selma to Montgomery, trailed by, by cars, not of curious onlookers, but of people uttering hostilities, doing everything in their power to dissuade the crowd from reaching their goal. We then went to Montgomery and the Legacy Museum, which draws the unmistakable and heartbreaking line from slavery to segregation and Jim Crow to mass incarceration in our own time. It was all so heavy, just a painful reminder that things are not the way they are meant to be. We got to the end and sat down for lunch, and I sat down next to my friend Vince, who pastors the church south in Memorial Drive. And I found myself having to ask him, hey, can I sit down next to you? Because I'm not sure, based on what you experience, if you want to look at another white person. And he said, no, it's, it's, it's cool. But then we just sat there, looking silently at our lunch. Somehow, eating did not make sense in response to what we just experienced. Fasting is a response to a grievous sacred moment, a calling out with our bodies for God to be God, to set things right. And yet, even in that darkness and in that heaviness, the kingdom breaks in. 
See, I was there with 48 other brothers and sisters in Christ from across the city, spanning the racial divide, and the conversation we had and the times of fellowship and worship were a hopeful sign of the world that God intends, how we're meant to bear one another's pain, and how Jesus just keeps on breaking down the dividing walls of hostility to keep us from knowing each other, from loving each other, from seeing each other. Together, we bore the heaviness and the pain in our bodies And we ate together as a hopeful sign of things to come. This is what it is like to live under the reign of the kingdom that is here and now, but is also not yet. To mourn the pain and the brokenness and to hold hope at the same time. We also celebrate the joy because we see the kingdom of God like a mustard seed breaking through the dusty soil of this world. And he's going to keep doing it. And so friends, this is my, my hope as we, as we wrap up this practice. It's not simply that you learned a couple interesting things about fasting. It's not that you maybe moved the needle from being really skeptical to slightly less skeptical. <laughs> but that this becomes actually woven into your overall lifestyle as followers of Jesus have done throughout most of history. I'll say it again that, you know, if you were to study uh, the community of disciples in the first 13 centuries of the church's life, you'd notice a fairly consistent pattern that looks a bit like this. It's kind of how they arranged their lives. They ate in moderation most days. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays until sundown. And they shared their food with the poor on those days. And then every Sunday was a feast. As one historian put it, every Sunday was a mini Easter And this pattern of of eating, fasting, and feasting, it's a long-standing rhythm in the life of the church. As Nora shared last week, it's still alive in vast swathes of the, the Christian tradition even now. And it's no secret that here in the West, we gravitate far more towards feasting than we do toward fasting. But there is a reciprocal relationship between the two. You can only do the one well if you know how to do the other. I love how Martha, Marva Dawn puts it in her wonderful book on Sabbath. She writes, Americans don't know how to feast because they don't know how to fast. Especially if we fast on behalf of those who don't have enough and share our plenty with them, our feasting will be much more meaningful. And so friends, this is an invitation to glean from the wisdom of the church throughout history to join in a rhythm of eating, of fasting, but don't forget the feast. This is my invitation to you. And it is just that. It is an invitation. It is not a requirement. It is not a, uh, you know, for you to participate in the life of this community. It is not uh, a condition of your membership. There's not some initiation, right, to be part of the real all souls that's behind all of this. None of that. It's just an invitation. This Wednesday marks the beginning of Holy Week, a time of prayer, of reflection, and yes, of fasting. And as I was mapping out the year, I thought, what if we discovered this ancient rhythm of eating and fasting and feasting and praying together? What if we did that in whatever form it takes, whether for you that is abstaining from food but not water, uh, from sundown one day till sundown the next 
Uh, taking on a partial or restricted diet, maybe cutting out sugar from your, from your day, or, or kale, if that's like your go-to, like whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. Some of you all like kale, I, I pray for you, but. But what if we took the time to pray together about our church, about our community, about our nation? <laughs> oh man, about our nation. <laughs> about our world, both together, but also separately, but also together corporately as a body. So on Ash Wednesday, we're going to be putting out some prompts for us to fast and pray two times during Lent. We're going to invite you to gather on Wednesdays to fast and pray together. And this is the critical thing I also want to say as I, as I wrap up. Feasting is good. And it's holy. Fasting is good and it's holy. It's a way to offer ourselves to God, a way to enlist our bodies as an ally in the, the fight against the flesh. It's a way to grow in holiness. It's a means to participate in God's justice toward the, the poor and the hungry. It's a way to aid our prayers in times of discernment and a way to express in our bodies the hope we carry for the future renewal of all things. But friends, we're not meant to live there. Fasting is temporary. The feast goes on forever. And more fasting is not a key to more goodness. There is a danger in seeing more as a, a kind of uh, way of, of earning merit or currying favor or, 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 or earning some sort of, of, of grace with God. John's disciples say to Jesus, we fast often, as if to say, well, if fasting is a good thing, then doing it more frequently, doing it more intensely must be a way to lead us into deeper transformation quickly. But again, Jesus says, no, the kingdom is not a meritocracy. Fasting is a good and, re and faithful response to our longing, but our longing directs us to the time when we will feast and weep no more. This is the story that all of Scripture tells. The, the church fathers and mothers point out that fasting and feasting actually frame the whole of the biblical story. Genesis it describes the creation of two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The invitation was to fast from the one tree and to feast on the other, but our first ancestors refused the invitation. And the rest of the story of Scripture is about God wanting to bring us back to the table. And so scripture ends with a vision of the future in Revelation 21 and 22 where God will gather all nations, all ethne in the words of the New Testament, each bringing their distinctive gifts and graces before the throne where they will be ushered into a wedding feast at the marriage of heaven and earth with Jesus himself at the table. And at that table there will be no more fasting, no more hunger, no more solidarity with the poor and hungry because at this table there are no more poor and hungry, only those gathered by grace. The wedding feast of the Lamb. When we feast, we act out a glorious sign of that future. When we fast, we pray with our bodies for that future to come quick. We pray in the words of the church, come Lord Jesus. And so it is.
And we fast as a way of carrying that hope in our bodies for the flourishing to be made a present reality in the world and we feast as a way of expressing our confidence that in Jesus the victory has already been won. And so yeah, we live with attention. Christ has come and so we feast. Christ has not yet come and so we fast. And so may you feast and may you fast. And as we enter this season of Lent, may we pray together to hasten Jesus' return until the renewal of all things.